This episode is a little different from the norm. Usually we talk to someone who's experienced something really unusual, but every once in a while I like to have a guest on who has an unusual job, a job that I find really interesting and have lots of questions about. So that's what we're doing here today. My guest is Julie, and she works as a hospice nurse. She's been doing this for many years, so she has lots of information and lots of stories. Every one of us is unique as an individual, but we all have something in common. We are all going to die eventually. And in some cases, we might get a medical diagnosis that says we have a certain number of weeks or months left before that happens. Of course, it's usually just a rough guess and not always accurate. But still, it's a sobering thing to have a medical professional tell you that there are no more treatment options and you're probably approaching the end of your life. That's often when hospice care enters the picture. So Julie told me all about that and what she does as a hospice nurse. And there was something I also found very interesting that Julie told me about herself she has a very specific fear, and it's not one that I would have guessed based on the type of work she does. Julie has a fear of dead people. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's been said, or at least I've heard it said, that people who are in a coma or, or they're unconscious, they're still able to hear everything that's being said in the room. Have you, do you have any evidence of this or have you experienced something that might confirm that? I do. I've seen it many, many times. I've been a hospice nurse for about 18 years. And one of the common things I see a lot is, well, I'll give you a good example. I would have a patient that is bedridden. We call it non-responsive as opposed to comatose, meaning that no matter what you do, you can't wake them up. So they're non-responsive because they are near death. But I've had families, like one in particular, there was four adult children. They were all in their 40s and 50s. And it was the first time I visited. And most hospice patients are at home. And when I walked in, she was in a very small bedroom and it had two single beds and the mom was non-responsive in one bed and all four kids were lined up 
sitting on the other bed. So I went in and did my nursing assessment and had all my question answers and I was answered and I was about ready to leave. And I said, does anybody have any other questions? And the one daughter said, yes, no. And the brother said, ask her. She said, no, no, nobody can tell me. And I said, go ahead and try me. And she said, when is she going to die? Which is a very, very common question. I think we all get that question in hospice hundreds of times. She said, I've been, we've been sitting here for four days, round the clock. And she just, everybody says she's going to die any minute. And she just hasn't died. And I said, so you've literally been sitting in the room for four days? And she said, yeah, we're taking turns. We haven't left her side. And I said, try this. Tell her you're going to go to dinner. Lean over one at a time. Say, we're going to go out to dinner, mom. We'll be back in an hour. Give her a kiss. Draw the shades. Shut the door and see what happens. And I usually clock out at five. And that was about 4.45 in the afternoon. And the next day, I looked at the overnight report, and her time of death was 5.45, which in order to put a time of death, the nurse has to go get the call, drive out there, and do the formal pronouncement. So what that meant to me was she had died minutes after they walked out of the room. The big question is, can they hear us? Absolutely. I know that, and I could tell you 10 more stories very similar. I've heard many doctors say the last sense, you know, out of sight, touch, taste, feel, all of that is um, hearing the last sense to go. I'm kind of saddened to hear that story because that means if, if she was hearing everything, the impression that I got is that, wow, I'm inconveniencing my family by taking so long to die. Is that what the daughter was actually saying? Is that what she was? No, I. I don't think so. I don't, or at least I don't perceive it that way. Um, usually at end of life, especially if it's been a long drawn out decline, everybody's ready, including the patient, but the family, they just want them to be at peace. It's not like I'm inconvenienced. It's more like cheese. You know, she hasn't had food or water or conversation in days. Nobody wants anybody to linger what I call limbo where they're just non-responsive and but people can for many, many, many days. But I think one of the, the kind of coolest stories, not cool, but it was interesting, very similar happening. The lady was in her bed. She had two hired round-the-clock caregivers because the family was very wealthy. The married couple, the wife was the patient, the husband was there, and they were about 60-ish, so not, not real old. And the kids were in their 20s, same thing. They asked me, you know, why is she hanging on? She, she had been non-responsive for a whole week. And I gave him the same spiel and he shot daggers at me. He said, absolutely not. We would never leave her alone and, and acted like that was a terrible thing that I was asking him to do. And I said, I'm just talking about five minutes, you know, 10 minutes. Anyway, he was very upset that I asked that, and he thought I was a horrible nurse, and his daughter was standing next to him, and I very kindly tried to say to him, I said, let me rephrase this. If you had a choice to die in front of your child or not, what would your choice be? And I saw his whole expression change, and he kind of, you know, nobody wants to die in front of their kid. I mean, I wouldn't. If you, if you gave me a choice... 
the cool part was he he realized that it was worth a try and that it wasn't cruel. And that lady died in five minutes after we left the room and for an entire week. That's amazing to me. But on, but on the other hand, you think, you know, you don't want to have somebody die alone. But I mean, really, if the family's there around the clock practically and they just leave for five minutes, it's not like, you know, a big sense of loneliness. It's just that they felt okay to, to go at that time. Let's back up a little bit and define, can you give us the actual definition of what specifically is hospice care? To kind of go back to the beginning, just give you a little background, um, a nurse, Cicely Saunders, founded it. She started working on it in the 50s because what she saw was a lot of people would have some kind of illness that they perceived to be terminal and their care stopped. But as we all know, the very end of life, you have a lot of symptoms. You have pain, breathing issues, skin issues, all, all kinds, and emotional. You know, to, to feel like someone is not caring for you is very difficult. So in the 50s, she started to push towards opening a place to bring patients into that were no longer cared for at the hospital. And it took her quite a while. And she was actually told by a doctor that if she became a doctor, people would take her more seriously. That was in 1960-ish. So she did become a doctor and she opened the first hospice in 1967. It is worldwide. Over 80 countries have adopted some form of hospice in one capacity or another, like Japan. They do it just for cancer and AIDS patients. Across the U.S., it's very, very similar. And what it is, is for people that have been told they have a disease that will take their life within six months, which is a very good educated guess by a doctor, and it has to be by a doctor. That patient is referred to hospice. The big thing about hospice is that patient has agreed not to get curative care, meaning if they have tumor from cancer and a doctor says, well, if we keep giving you radiation and chemo, it'll shrink it down and it might take it away. That would be more of a curative, but they can get palliative treatment which people can, um, they mix up palliative and hospice a lot. They're very similar words. If somebody has a tumor in their neck and is pushing and growing and now they can't swallow, if they're told that they get radiation, it'll shrink the tumor enough to let them continue to swallow for more, many more weeks. That would be a palliative chemo. And we do take patients like that, but it's on a case-by-case basis. So what hospice is, is a patient that chooses to live at home and they choose to have hospice take care of them. So what they get is a nurse that comes out to see them once or twice a week. We do a visit, a full head-to-toe assessment. We adjust medications, all of that. You have a doctor or a nurse practitioner that oversees the care. And then we have a whole bunch of other people. We have the social worker that comes out once or twice a month and helps them navigate any, any kind of social issue they have. When somebody gets a terminal diagnosis, the family goes, often goes into a tailspin. So there's a lot of social issues that they come up with. And then there's the nursing assistants, which are one of the biggest helps any hospice patient will tell you because they help with personal care. They bathe them. 
help them dress, change the sheets. They're a huge help to the family. There's a chaplain service. They're non-denominational. You know, a lot of people are religious or they just want someone spiritual to come out and speak with them. You wrote that you have a fear of dead people. And I mean, usually when you think of hospice, you think of impending death. How does that fear manifest itself or what do you think brought that on? I really don't know why I have a fear of dead. It's not just dead dead people, it's dead anything. You know, you could put snakes, rats, spiders on me, but as soon as they're dead, I just, I have, it's irrational. There's, I mean, I did have a couple um, kind of unusual encounters with death kind of earlier on. The first one that I can remember is I was probably 12 years old. And we had a new kitten and my mom said, you know, put that kitten on the ground because it was up on the counter. She said, can you take the kitten off the counter so it doesn't drink my drink? So I picked it up, set it on the ground, and I had had my feet tied together because I was just hopping around the house just being a kid. And when I took off to hop away, I stepped on them and I killed it. And that memory has never left me. Not that I dwell or think about it often at all, but I know that was like my first real memory of anything dying. But then I had a good friend of my husband's when I was uh, very pregnant and I was 30 years old. He was in our woods chopping down firewood and he um, split his whole head in half with a chainsaw. So we lived and breathed that nightmare for days. It was just horrible. He was a young guy. It was a freak accident. And then probably not even three, four years after that, I was remarried. And at the end of our wedding, one of the guys, uh, another good friend of that husband, (laughs) he uh, was leaving our wedding on a motorcycle and got hit by a car. And we were the second person to find him. The police were there. And then we heard of it. And went out and I kept trying to say, you know, does he have a long beard? Is it to see if it was our friend or not? Because it was dark and foggy. And finally the cop turned around and she said, honey, he doesn't have a face. And that was, that never will leave you. The only other fear in all of life I have are frogs. And that's irrational too, because I've never had an issue with a frog. You know, they they say these phobias or fears are irrational, but they're not irrational to the person experiencing it. Oh, no. Um, You know, it seems like a real thing. What caused you to get into hospice nursing? I couldn't find a job. I was a new nurse. I was an LPN first, licensed practical nurse. And I wanted a job in shock trauma, you know, something huge. The only place they would hire me is a nursing home, and I had to get a year experience. And after three months in a nursing home, I sent out a whole bunch of applications because it just happened to be, it was 05 to 06. So I wrote on my application that I'd been a nurse from 05 to 06, and I didn't put the month. So I was hoping somebody would notice, <laughs> thinking I worked there. Oh, you know. Two years of experience, yeah. I got a phone call. Out of my 20-some applications I sent, and they said it was Golfside Regional. And if they said hospice, I didn't hear it. And I showed up for the interview, and she had started talking about money and that she wanted to hire me. And then she said, I have one more question. What makes you feel you'd be a good hospice nurse? And I thought, hospice, what is that? 
remember I was brand new nurse and I went, oh, in my mind, I went, that's dead people. (laughs) But I wanted out of the nursing home. It was $4 more an hour, no nights, no weekends. My daughter was only 10. I was a single mom and I took it. And I thought, well, the first time I have to touch a dead person and I faint on top of them, they'll fire me. But maybe that'll buy me a couple months and I'll be halfway to my year (laughs) between the nursing home and the uh, hospice because I knew the minute I even maybe got close to a person that had passed, I would faint. But I didn't. So here I am 18 years later. Tell me about like when you first get a new patient, someone who's just gone on to hospice and, and you get there for the first time. Let's say you go to their home. What's the process? What do you do to um, get them on board? Yeah. So, like I said, at some point, a lot of patients come out of the hospital. So let's say, you know, Tom goes to the hospital because he's had a bad cough. And after two, three weeks, they diagnose him with end stage lung cancer. And they say, you know, how about hospice? And he and the family decide that's what they want. So he comes home and he's on hospice. But it's it's difficult for most families and patients because this is usually a new diagnosis, but it's still a difficult decision to say, I'm done with almost like you're giving up any hope of a cure. So the admission nurse, which is usually one in the same as the nurse that'll take care of them the whole time, um, we go in and we sit down with the patient and we go over all that hospice has to offer. And that's when they make their final decision to come on board or not. And they fill out a bunch of paperwork. We do a whole head-to-toe assessment. I have a great story about I walked into a house and there is probably, often there's five to 20 family members. Because again, if it's a new diagnosis, you know, it's a big deal. They call everybody and say, hey, mom's going on hospice. And everybody shows up. So there was a whole lot of people there. And when I walked through the door, The patient was in another part of the house. All the adult children surrounded me and they said, we just want to ask you if you can take off your badge. We don't want mom to know that you're a hospice nurse, which I've had, all of us have been asked to do that. And my stock answer is, yes, I can. But if she asks me, I have to tell her. And they said, that's okay. She won't ask. Just say you're the nurse. And I said, that's fine. It was not just hospice. It was hospice and the fact that she had cancer. They didn't want her to know she had cancer. I went back into the room with the mom and, you know, the family followed me in. And it's a long process. We can be there an hour to three hours, depending. And at one point, it was just her and I, the little old lady that was the patient. And she leaned in and she said, honey, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. And she said, I have cancer. I said, you do? And she said, yes, but please don't tell my family. (laughs) So the family didn't want her to know and but she knew and she didn't know her family knew so they were all keeping it a secret from each other but anyhow so we get them all on board and then we kind of set up a schedule of how we're going to see them and we let them know that the social worker the chaplain and the nursing assistant if they choose to have one will be out that week to introduce themselves and get on a schedule with them too once that's all done, and you, you said you come out once or twice a week to see them, what do you do when you go there? I mean, I would imagine you take their vital signs, make sure they're clean and comfortable and fed if they're eating, but do you just sit with them and talk or what else? 
A nursing visit is usually an hour. And we do, uh, like you said, we do do a head-to-toe assessment. You know, we check their feet and their bottoms and their skin integrity. We take their vitals, which is blood pressure, pulse, listen to their lungs. And that's the same as a nurse does in any hospital. Anytime a nurse does an assessment on the patient, they're all just about the same. But with a hospice patient, I often say anywhere from 50 to 80% of it is emotional. And you sit and you talk to the patient. Sometimes I do a quick assessment. The patient has end-stage dementia. She can't communicate, even though they can live like that for years. And it's mostly talking to the family, helping them navigate, listening to their feelings and letting them talk, helping them with problems. There are many complicated patients that have in-depth wounds. You know, they've been in a nursing home for years and their skin is just not in good shape. And they come home to stay with Cousin Billy because now she's dying and they want her to have better care. That happens a lot. People will take them out of the nursing home at the end of life. So there's that. Another big part of a nursing job is medication management. There's so many people out there that have five different doctors. You have your general practitioner and then you have all your specialists. The amount of drugs that people are on is is mind-boggling. And often, especially the older population, they have no idea what kind of medicines they are. So, you know, I've walked into homes and they're on 40 different medicines that they take every day and sometimes multiple times a day. And when you put them all together, like you're on a medication that helps lower the blood pressure, and then you're on a medication that helps bring your blood pressure up because this doctor didn't know. Because when you when you go to a doctor, you say, they say, what meds are you taking? It's just what you verbally tell a doctor. People have a little scrap of paper in their purse, but most of the time, patients don't know what they're on. So big part of it is medication management. But you can't go in and say, holy heck, you're on 20 drugs you don't need because to a patient, they think they're keeping them alive or helping them. So little by little, maybe you could subtract one this week and subtract one that week. And and, and you're, you're the one that makes the decision on medication, like taking some away, or do you have to get a doctor to do that? Nurses technically can't put a Band-Aid on a cut without a doctor order. What we do do is we assess and we recommend. So if I saw a patient had too many medications or something, I just call the doctor and I say, this is where I am. And he's able to pull up their whole medical file. He can pull up their med list and I make suggestions. And most of the time they go with it. Sometimes they say, no, I like this, or let's do that different. But anything, again, wound care, um, ordering oxygen for a patient, we always have to clear it with the doctor or nurse practitioner. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business. And I love that. 
And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25 what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25 what. My favorite story about too many medication is I had a little man in Atlanta. He lived with his mother his whole life, never married. I don't think he ever even had a girlfriend. He just um, was a mama's boy. And when I met him, his mother had just passed away at age, I think, 90. She was cutting the grass and she had a AAA burst. So he had been taking care of her and with her his whole life. So he was very lonely and very lost, very low education level. He was so sick, he could barely walk and breathe. He was on continuous oxygen. His feet were so blown up. He couldn't put shoes on. They were just tremendous. He had uh, cardiac issues. We started seeing him twice a week and set up his medications. He was another patient that had, you know, 30, 40 medicines, had no idea when to take them. He just said, I I just take them every day. I'm like, well, how many of each? I don't know. I just take some. (laughs) We line up seven days a week. They're little pill boxes. So I set two of them up and he knew every morning to take this one and every evening take that one. And uh, anyhow, after weeks and weeks and weeks of helping him and then tweaking his meds. So the swelling started going down. So we took away the diuretic, the this hap or lowered the diuretic or whatever it was. But after four or five months, we actually discharged him, which is interesting because most people think once you're on hospice, you never leave. And that's not true. 
we discharge people often. And he got better. He got better. He stopped using oxygen and he was able to cut his grass. But uh, I love this guy. We call him Chicken Man because he would ask me to bring him chicken every time I visited him. <laughs> but I think three or four of the times I went to visit him, he didn't answer his door. And this was early on when he was very, very sick. So I had to call the social worker. It was a guy I worked with. And I'd say, can you come to Chicken Man's house? Because he would ask everybody to bring him chicken. It wasn't just me. We all brought him chicken. <laughs> and we didn't know that for a while. He was uh, triple dipping. But anyhow, because I was afraid he would be dead, because that's happened to me. You know, you show up and they don't answer the door and it's because they had passed away. He, his door would be wide open, so I would make the social worker come walk through the house and find him. But each time he was somewhere, you know, in the bathroom where he couldn't hear me, but uh, he had a happy ending. To me, it seems so ironic that, you know, when a, when a patient is, has, a, has a disease and they're seeing a doctor, that doctor might be seeing 500 other patients. So he can't really focus on any one really closely. I mean, he does, obviously they do their best, but then when they go into hospice, there, there's a lot more focused treatment. You can, you can observe how medications help or hinder their progress and people actually get better because of going into hospice. You see that fairly often? Absolutely. That's just, um, that's amazing. The one that I remember the most. She had a terrible cough, couldn't get better. They thought she had the flu. And she was probably in her late 70s, had a really good family, a lot of support. When I met her, she was in a hospital bed. I walked in. She had gotten home from the hospital that day. And she is in a hospital bed, laying flat, you know, head barely elevated. She's got oxygen on, afraid to death to move. And the backstory was they thought she had the flu. It didn't get better. They brought her to the hospital. They diagnosed her with end-stage lung cancer and had her on oxygen the entire three weeks she was in the hospital and didn't let her out of bed. And the biggest reason for that, because she walked into the hospital. She was actually shopping for a car when she got what they thought was the flu. And it was the first time in her whole life she was going to own a car. So she was so excited, but it got cut short. And so... After three weeks of not being let out of bed, she comes home. And when I heard the whole story, I said, so you never wore oxygen before you got to the hospital? She said, no, I breathed fine. I just had a cough. And I realized she had walked into the hospital. So the bottom line is, I said, I'm going to take off your oxygen and see how you breathe. And she was fine. And then I said, let's get up and walk. And she, her whole family threw their arms up. Oh, no, they you know, kept her in bed. And I said, why? Why did they keep her in bed? Her legs work. You know, the bottom line is she was able to not use her oxygen except now and again for the next couple months. She used it sporadically when she needed it. I encourage people to use oxygen. It helps them. But for the next two or three months, she had a really good life. She got her car. She drove her car. She was walking and doing the dishes and participated with the family. And I do believe if the right hospice care didn't come in there, she would have stayed in that bed strapped to oxygen because they all believed that she shouldn't get out of bed and she couldn't take the oxygen off. So mentally, she would have let go. 
And I've, I've seen that with patients too. When they're ready, they let go and they're gone. We bought her another three, four good months. And then she slowly declined like they said she would. And, you know. Right. Yeah, they had that time, that extra time with her. Yeah. How often do you see a patient that has no family or friends? They're just alone in the world. Too often. But probably it, when I have a caseload of patients, I usually have about 15 to 20 patients that are mine that I see consistently. And two to three will be living alone. From the day that we identify they have no caregiver or no live-in a partner or a child, when we realize that the social worker's job task is to start working on what are we going to do when you get to the point that you can't take care of yourself. And we try to put something into place. We, you know, solicit family members to step up. And it doesn't always happen. Most of the time we find something or they end up going into a nursing home or if they have VA vet benefits, they'll go to a VA nursing home. Sometimes people will not leave their house. And it's very difficult to get the police involved. And, you know, to, when a patient can no longer get out of the house alone, it's still not illegal to stay home. There's a lot of gray area on that. So, and we've had some patients that just say, I don't care. I'm not leaving. <laughs> and they stay there. Well, yeah. And if that's their decision, you know, they're the ones to make that decision. Right. Have you ever had a hospice patient that surprised you by how young they were? We have a pediatric division and we have an adult division. And I've never worked pediatrics, nor could I. So our population goes from 18 up. I had a guy in his 20s. Um, I've had people in their 30s, plenty in their 40s. Oh, I think I'm maybe just one or two in their 20s, maybe three. Not too much. Most people that are young, they don't throw in, the, well, that's a terrible phrase, throw in the towel. They fight the fight until the end. And that's their option. You know, they don't ever want to say, I don't want any more treatment. They usually die in a hospital being treated. Can you talk about the use of morphine? Mm. Are there, do some patients or even family members, is there a wrong concern or misplaced concern about the use of morphine? I have found that often. A lot of times when someone gets to know me and finds out that I'm in hospice, they often say, oh, yeah, hospice killed my mom with morphine, which is a terrible misconception. And I love when I'm able to kind of explain to them that that's probably not what killed them. It was the dying process. Because a lot of times at the very end, we do use morphine because morphine is an excellent drug. Um, it helps with breathing. It helps with pain. It's super easy to administer because it comes in a liquid form. The other thing, it's readily available. Hardly ever do they run out where a lot of other narcotics or opiates, they um, run out of at pharmacies or shortages, you know, their backlog in production. So it's readily available, but it's an excellent med. One of the men I had, he lived with his daughter and her family and his wife, and he had end-stage dementia and something else on top of it because he was still walking and talking. In order to qualify for dementia, you have to be 
almost nonverbal and bed bound. And because dementia is a long, long, very long process, you know, from diagnosis to death can be 20 years. He had something else too. I think it was cancer, but I was first or second visit and sitting at the table doing my assessment. Everything's peaceful. And all of a sudden there's this tremendous bang on the door and in comes this guy and he was the patient's son. And he looked at me and he said, are you hospice? And I said, I am. And he said, get out of here. You're nothing but a fucking murderer with morphine and just screamed in my face. He was so angry because he just found out that his sister put the dad on hospice and he was sure I was going to kill him. And because that's a big misconception people have that, you know, hospice waltzes in and we dope them up with morphine and they're dead in three days. And that's so not the case. But this was a kind of a, a neat story because it took me a long time to win him over and make him understand that he wasn't on morphine and we didn't use that until we needed it. And sometimes never, often we never pull out morphine. But then just as many times I can have people on morphine for two years and it's just part of their pain regimen. Like I said, it's a good drug. It works well and it manages pain well. But he ended up after a couple months and his father's decline, the sister couldn't handle him. So he moved in with the son. And I then started making visits at the son's house. And we became BFFs throughout the journey because he realized how helpful hospice was. I can't remember if we ever did use morphine or not, but I know that uh, he was very grateful. And it was just along with a lot of misconceptions with hospice. That's a big one. I think the one I'm the most passionate about as far as misconceptions, and this is an important one. When you come to hospice, we know that you have a terminal disease. And the first day of admission, they ask you if you want the patient to be a DNR or a DNRO, which is a do not resuscitate order versus a full code. It's, it's really quite simple, but People don't understand it and make it much more complicated. All that question is, is if you stop breathing, do you want me to try to resuscitate you? Period. Has nothing to do with feeding tubes, respirators, none of that. It's one question. Do you want me to try to bring you back? So hospice, a lot of people believe that you have to be a DNR. That is not true. That it's illegal to force somebody to do that. There are private hospices that can kind of tweak their own rules, and maybe they handpick people that aren't a DNR, but the thing about it is, I'll use my mom as an example. She was perfectly healthy. I mean, she appeared to be perfectly healthy. She was 80 years old. She was walking, talking, driving, eating. She was going to her happy hour every night, having her two beers. And she had a lot of pain, a lot of pain, thought it was her, you know, damn arthritis. And she finally went to the doctor and he said, let's just run a bunch of tests. And within three days, the test came back and my mom had bone, lymph, lung, and liver cancer. And this was just three years ago. So me as a hospice nurse, I said, Ma, you have a triple metastasis. You know, you you don't want treatment. So a lot of people, you know, if, if your wife was 45 years old and again, she has a bad cough and they say, oh. She has lung cancer and it's spread everywhere. And then my next question is in that same hour, 
So here, sign this, do not resuscitate. You're like, what, what? It takes a lot of time for people to wrap their head around, you know, okay, we're not going to get her treatment anymore or we're not going to pursue treatment. But for me to say to you, if she stops breathing, we're going to let her die. That's a whole nother question. And it takes days, you know, months. But in, again, my 18 years, I've had many people come on as a full code. And at the end, only one patient scared me. And it was the wife, because that's another thing about it. If you, if I have a husband and he says, these are my wishes, if I get bad, don't resuscitate me. You should honor that. But as the wife or the next of kin, whoever's next in line, as soon as that patient can't speak anymore, you now be, have the right to rescind that, which I don't think is right. It doesn't make any sense to me. Most people honor what their loved one wants, but we had a whole family of um, grown children. Dad was dying and the stepmom had him as a full code. And even hospice, the doctors and the social workers, everybody encourages the nurse to get them to sign that DNR, which I don't. I bring it up, I explain it to them. And then, you know, I'm if things really start going down, I might mention it again. Hey, do you want to think about this? No, okay. But it was the hour before his death because she didn't want to give up. No matter what, she wanted him resuscitated. She wanted him put on a ventilator and, and all of that. But at the very, very, it was the hour before he died. She finally said, okay, now I now see that he is dying and there's nothing we could probably do. But the other thing about a DNR is people misconstrue that a DNR is a respirator. So I'll say to people, you know, would you like to be a DNR or do you want to remain a full code? They say, oh, honey, DNR, I don't want to be put on machines. And I'm like, well, that's, that's the second part of the question. You know, if we resuscitate you and you come back and you can't breathe on your own, then the next question is, you know, if you can't breathe on your own, you can't eat on your own, you know, what kind of life support, life-sustaining support do you want? And a lot of people say, bring me back. You know, if you find out that I can't live off of a machine, then extubate. So it's, it's a kind thing. I go over it so lightly in the beginning because I think it's, I don't think it's right to ask a patient to make that decision on the heels of getting this catastrophic news. You know, it's like, okay, he has this big problem and um, you okay if we don't do anything about it? <laughs> you know, if he stops breathing? It seems like this whole thing is a very, it can be anyway, a very emotionally intense experience. When you're there with the patient, or especially when there's family members, there are family members involved, how do you maintain professional boundaries? I mean, you're a human. If a family's about to lose their father or their mother or, their, or a loved one, everybody cries at that. Right. And we do. It's all the real highs and the real good part of hospice and the connections with people. I mean, it's pretty darn heady when you can walk into a pancreatic cancer patient that's been literally suffering for six or eight months because they haven't been able to have their pain managed. And within 24 or 48 hours, I can get them comfortable. 
I mean, it's almost godlike, you feel. And the reason I do it, and again, when I say I, I mean me under the guidance of a doctor, of course. Hospice is super generous with medication. And then we also, you know, there's medications that work well together and help fight pain. So a lot of, we'll say practitioners, they just keep increasing the opioid. And what happens? We fight the pain, but you knock the patient out. And we're all about quality and quantity of life. We want to give them the longest, best life we can. And, you know, the quality of it. So if you add steroids, you add, you know, pills for the nervous system that help block, you know, pain receptors for the nerves. There's tons of medications. And another one is mental. You know, if, if you're anxious, your muscles are tight. So you also need something to relax the mind because pain is always worse if you're tense. So, and, and even um, Tylenol, I say if there's only one drug in the whole world for pain, I would choose Tylenol. It's great to be able to take somebody out of pain and walk in two days later and they go, this is the first time in six months I haven't had pain or my pain is so little, you know, I can tolerate it now. I feel good because when you're in pain, you can't, you don't want to eat. You don't want to talk. You don't want to smile. I've had patients on hospice services for five years and, you know, people, it is for six months or less, but like you have a COPD patient, you know, they have a chronic lung disease and they're not being medicated properly. They don't have the right oxygen or whatever it is that makes them look as if they're on the way out with somebody taking care of them and and visiting them once or twice a week and changing and tweaking and helping, they can live for a lot longer than the doctor expected. So um, you develop relationships. But I always say, like you and your job, how many times this week has somebody hugged you and said, I love you, thank you? Probably probably not, right? Nope. Nobody hugs podcasters. Come on. That's right. So, (laughs) and any... Most professions. So I get that almost every day. You know, I have heartfelt thank yous and hugs all the time. So it definitely outweighs those moments of sadness because they are just moments. You know, when somebody passes again, most people are ready. They're, they're, I mean, I, I had a guy, he was six foot seven. And he was in tremendous shape and he got pancreatic cancer. So the whole rest of him was healthy as an ox. And he was in his 60s, so he wasn't that old. When he finally became bedbound, he said, I'm done. I, I want to go. And he stopped eating and drinking. It always gets to the point where they can't eat and drink. So it started out that he mentally let go probably long before his body would have shut down. But he became weaker, and um, I think the three days before he passed away, he said to me, I went to hug him goodbye, and he grabbed me by my scrub shirt and pulled me back down, and he was a big guy, and he, I was face-to-face, and he said, why can't I die? I said, I don't know. I'm so sorry. He just wanted to die so bad, but he went 42 days with no food or water. No IVs. He had ice chips. That was it, which a lot of people, unless you're in the industry, 
find that very hard to believe, but he, he had nothing. Those moments are very sad, but the highs way outweigh the lows. What do you see? You just mentioned pancreatic cancer. What do you see as the cruelest disease? There's several answers to that. Brain cancer is the most unpredictable that I see. If you have end-stage cardiac, lung cancer, liver cancer, I can almost, and I do, I predict all the time, you know, this patient's going to die in three days a week, but I can see it coming weeks ahead of time. And I can almost tell you step-by-step what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what's going to happen to their appetite, their bowels, their urine, all the different systems. They systematically shut down, usually in a pretty common order. But with brain cancer, it's totally unpredictable. You can be, I had a guy who was out of the neighborhood barbecue and he was in his 40s and he had a wife and some young kids and he was having a beer with the neighbors. And the next morning I got a call that something was wrong and I walked out and he was dying and he died that day. So because thinking about how the brain works, when you have a tumor in there, it's a dead spot, right? That doesn't function and it can grow up a millimeter overnight and hit an area that controls your, um, you know, your vital signs and it interrupts something and you have a very quick death. But it's also the really sad part of brain cancer is it changes personalities. You can have just crazy, wacky, unpredictable behavior with brain cancers. So to me, that's probably one of the saddest, but um, then emotionally pancreatic cancer. Absolutely. Because it's common knowledge if somebody has more than a stage one or two of pancreatic cancer, there is no cure. It's a death sentence. So people with pancreatic cancer emotionally, they don't even have a chance to think they have a shot. It just immediately, it's like, I'm going to die. And it's also has a lot of symptoms with it when the pancreas doesn't function. But what I see the biggest fear is people that have are afraid of pain. And that is hardest thing to make somebody understand that we can control your pain. And I am owing thousands that I've never had a patient die in pain. A little bit, maybe, but a lot, no. We have such great ways to help control it. I think one of my craziest stories is at one point in the county I live, they decided that People in jail were entitled to hospice care, which was really strange because they have a whole infirmary. They have a ward where they put them. And my boss chose me to be the jail hospice nurse because I guess she thought I was thick skinned. I don't know. It was scary, but I met two patients in there. Actually, I had three. And it's after a month of me going to the jail twice a week, which was not nice because I always say if you work at jail, it's kind of like you are in jail. It's not a very fun atmosphere, but two of the patients got sent home on compassionate release. And that's when, you know, they know that the patient is, has a slim chance to do anything, but just go home and die. And they put ankle bracelets on them. But the one patient I had, they asked me if I wanted to know what his charges were, one of the people in the jail. And I said, I don't think I'm supposed to know that. And I really don't want to know, but I don't know if he was allowed to tell me, but anyway, whatever it was, he was in there for a very long time. He was actually a really neat guy. He was in his 70s. He lived with us. He went home to his sister's house, and I got to be friends with him and all his family. You know, I'd see him all twice a week. And 
every time he was happy, joking around, he'd always joke. And when I got to the part of the assessment, I'd say, well, how's your pain? He'd go, oh, oh, it's terrible. It's an eight. Well, we ask on a pain scale, zero to 10. And in the hospital, if you say your pain's an eight, you get narcotics. <laughs> and most people that are, you know, frequent flyers, they know that. And I'm like, uh, but you're taught in school. And part of your job is you don't doubt people. But I did in my own mind. But I kept every, we send meds out every two weeks. And I refilled, he was on Oxycontin and Oxycodone. So, you know, long acting and short acting. And he got lots of it. He had like the max for whatever it was. Hundreds of pills every two weeks would come to his house. I want to make clear that I never saw him in pain. He never acted like he had pain. But anyhow, at the end, Part of our job is we have to count all the drugs or all the narcotics that are left over in the home after a patient passes, and then we have to dispose of them. I was up to about 280 Oxycontins, and all of a sudden the sister said, oh, honey, I got more. And she went in and got a whole nother huge box of drugs, and I was up to over seven or 800 Oxycontins that we had given him. I thought for sure that this guy was selling them and it was a terrible and it was one of my big learning experiences because I thought, come on, he was not, you know, when somebody's on that much narcotics, you can see it in their eyes. He never took one of his pain pills, but he believed with all his heart that there was going to come a time that he was in so much pain and he wouldn't have enough medicine that he stockpiled it. And all the while I had thought that you know, he was, I mean, he was a jailbird, right? He was a bad guy. That's what I thought. I thought he was peddling him on the side because believe me, that happens. But uh, it was so not true. And it was pretty eye-opening that, um, anyway, my other jail guy, he had uh, an ankle bracelet on. He had an Italian mama that was awesome. But he had a lot of swelling because he had he had liver cancer. And one day, it was a Friday, I went to visit and he was, got to the point he was, he was within the last week of life, but his leg was so swollen. His mom called and said, you got to come over here quick. And his ankle bracelet was cutting into his skin. And I called the jail and I said, you guys got to come over, send a cop over here to take it off. And they said, oh, we can't do that. It's the end of day Friday. We'll be there Monday. And I said, no, no got to come off today it's you know compromising his circulation and they didn't care so i told the brother who this was a bad guy too that they were italian brothers that both had very long rap sheets they were very proud to tell me about them as i got to know them i said i know you have a bolt cutter he goes man i got six or seven (laughs) go get it (laughs) they're ready for that job (laughs) yeah so i i and his brother's like man i'm not doing it i'll go to jail and i said i will And I cut that ankle bracelet off with a big old bolt cutter and we set it on top of the little machine that was in the house. I asked them when I came back Monday and nobody ever did come. So I don't know if it didn't work or we cut it at the right right spot. But it turned out that they, um, the state finally figured out that we were double dipping and um, cut out hospice at the jail. I want to ask you about people that are listening to this. Some people might think, man, I would love to get involved with this, but I have no medical training. I'm not a nurse. I know there are hospice volunteers. There are. What would a non-medically trained person do as a volunteer? Well, 
when we talked about all the different people in hospice, the last one I didn't get to was something that's also mandatory, like the nursing assistant and the chaplain are volunteers. And every hospice has to have a percentage of volunteers that work there. The volunteers, you can actually go to the patient's homes. Um, a lot of the um, families need just a break. You know, maybe it's just the husband and the wife and the wife needs to get her hair done and the patient can't be left alone because everybody gets to the point where morally you should not leave people alone. So they can sit with them. Um, a lot of people develop relationships with the volunteers and they come every other week. Sometimes they even come once a week. Um, it, it got, you know, it was very different through COVID. And now in the last six months or so, everybody's trying to get volunteers to come back, but they are most places I've been are in sore need of them to go into the homes. And, and all you do is hang out with them. You're not allowed to change a diaper. You know, you can make them a sandwich and hand them a drink, but you can't do any personal care. You can't help them onto a commode. So you're just hanging out and be in the eyes. If something were to happen, you would just call me or the wife or whatever. There's also in the office, there's all kinds of duties, you know, making new folders for admissions and helping with a lot of work in the office. A lot of volunteers do that. The coolest program we have for volunteers, it's called, every every house is called, you know, some call it the 13th hour, some's the final hour. Wherever the patient is, is to be with them in the final hour of life. When we identify, and again, usually you can identify a patient in the last 24 hours of life, to have them go out there, not it's usually not because the patient's dying alone. It's the patient is dying and the wife has no support or the husband or the child. More patients have just one person in the home with them than the patients that are lucky enough to have a group or a family and, you know, extended family hanging out. But I would say more than 50% of all my patients is just one caregiver and one patient. And they, the caregiver doesn't want to be alone. They're scared to death. They're, a lot of people are like me. They don't like dead people, <laughs> you know? So it's really cool because it gives support to that family member when they need it the most. Because I've had a lot of people wrestle with the words are, I promised him he could die at home, but I can't handle this. And it's easy to make a promise like that. But when it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep and you're listening to somebody, in their final stages, um, it's scary. You know, people, most people have never seen somebody pass away and they don't know what to expect. I was on call one weekend. I was just picking up a shift and I got a call from the triage nurse and she said, so-and-so called and his mom's breathing four breaths a minute. Well, normal is 16, 18. So we knew at that respiration rate, she was close to the end. So I turned around and it probably took me a half an hour to get there. And as soon as I pulled up, it was a single wide trailer. The son threw the door open and he said, mama died about five minutes ago. I said, okay, I'm coming. Well, as soon as I walked in the door, it's again, single wide, the room's 12 foot wide and she's in the living room in a hospital bed. And from the second I saw her, she was long gone. The skin was gray, the mouth slack, eyes open, you know, peacefully laying there. So I walked up, I came, went up to the bedside, the son came next to me, his wife next to him. So all three of us are side by side. And I have to actually put my stethoscope on their 
chest and listen for, you know, an apical pulse to make sure that's what we do. We hold it there for a minute and then we can pronounce. And she was gone. There was no heartbeat. And, uh, you know, I'm 20 seconds in and all of a sudden this lady took the biggest gasp. It was just like, (gasps) and she sat straight up (laughs) and I mean, it was instant. It was just this big, huge noise. She sprung straight up. Of course, me with my fear, right? Wasn't very professional. I screamed and threw my hands up and my stethoscope went flying over and hit me in the back. And the son screamed and the wife screamed. All it was like the patient, me, the son, the wife. And I turned and looked at him and my whole body was shaking. I've never seen anything like that. And I said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I have tears streaming down my face. And it wasn't, well, half of it it scared me to death. But the other half was I was so horrible. I mean, what a nurse I was to scream like that, right? And he looked at me and he said, and we're all crying. And he said, honey, she scared the shit out of me too. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that set me back, you know, up until that point, that was a couple maybe a year into my career, I felt better and better, you know, um, with taking care of people that had passed and, you know, seeing death and touching them, which was very difficult. But I did have a spiel (laughs) that helped me out. When I heard somebody pass and I had to go pronounce, I would uh, walk into the house and typically I would know the people, you know, I already developed some kind of relationship, but I would, whoever greeted me, I would hold their, you know, give them a, you always give them a hug. I mean, there's somebody just died. It's very sad. And then I would not let go of them, kind of hold their hand and I kind of pat them on the hand and walk them back to where the patient was. That way they were holding on to me. They thought I was comforting them. And really, as long as I have somebody holding on to me or next to me, I'm okay or better. Not, not okay. But it's very difficult for me to go into a room with a person that passed away alone, it's almost impossible. The first time I faced that, it was a patient I got to know very well. He had a big, big extended family, and there was always five, six people there. You know, they told me he passed, so I knocked on the door, and they're like, hey, Julie, how you doing? And, you know, we were chit-chatting, and they, this was a long time coming, so it wasn't a terribly sad thing. You know, it was kind of like he was ready, and they were ready. And they say, you know where he is and pointed towards the back. And I scanned the room and I'm like, looks like everybody's out here, right? <laughs> so I said, well, um, you want to walk back with me? He goes, I oh, know I got to get a drink or something. And I'm like, oh, shoot, <laughs> I got to do this alone. Like, you're a big girl. You can do this. So and I and I felt good in their home. There was a nice family. So I'm like, I can do this. So I get back to the bed and he's laying there with a sheet over him. And I pull it down and put my stethoscope on his heart. And all of a sudden, his whole body started jumping under the sheet. I mean, legs flailing. It's bouncing up and down. And uh, there I go again. I scream. Actually, bloody murder. Because I mean, I'm telling you, my life, I bet this guy had passed away. There's no way, right? And the family came running in. And I'm like, just standing there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, right? Trying to. And they said they whipped the sheet back. And of course, I screamed again when they did that. It was and it was a greyhound. His greyhound was under the sheets and he knew me. So when he heard smelled me coming in, I guess, or (laughs) he got all excited up and down. I thought the patient was having these spasms. So 
you know, that was even worse than the poor lady that sat up and screamed on me. Honestly, that that sounds like a YouTube prank, you know, <laughs> a does. cruel hospice prank. Right. <laughs> but, the family wow. loved it. It did make them laugh. I was a mess, but they were kind uh-huh. about it. <laughs> Man, there's crazy, crazy happenings in hospice because you're dealing with patients in their home, you know. That really gives us a good overview. And I know there's more that I could have asked, and there's most likely going to be questions that people listening to this want to ask as well. So we're going to have your email address in the episode notes for, for this show, but also you're in the Facebook group. So if, if people in there just look for this post and they can post questions right there. And that way, maybe if like 10 people have the same question, you can answer it once instead of uh, answering 10 emails. Sure. I'd be happy to help if I can. One thing I just wanted to say as a footnote, and this goes out to everyone, nothing to do with hospice, but um, I think all hospice nurses see what I touched on earlier about medications and how important it is to be on the right medicines. But everyone, no matter who they are or where they are in a disease process, if you're taking medication, you should know what the medicine is, what it does for you. And make sure that you're not taking another medicine that could either interact, because there is that, or when you have multiple doctors, a lot of doctors, they say, no, no, I just want to focus on this. Um, They don't want to hear the big picture, but you should have one of your doctors or a friend that's a doctor or someone take a look at your meds and make sure that you're not on too much or sometimes you're not on enough. And keep a running list. But it's super important because medications can give you an incredibly good normal life or they can kill you. So it's important. There were so many more aspects of her job that Julie could have talked about and so many more questions I could have asked. But I try to avoid creating an episode that's like six hours long. But you can contact her directly by email if you want. And as I mentioned in our conversation, she's in the podcast Facebook group, so you can ask her questions there as well. And you can join in the amazing discussions we have there every day. It's completely free, of course. You can join at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And just as an aside, I used that Facebook group to decide whether or not to have Julie come on the show. I knew that I would be interested But I wanted to make sure you, as a listener, would want to hear about this too. So I posted a poll in the Facebook group asking that question. And in the end, 95% of the votes said yes, we want to hear about this. Some people also said, yeah, we're starting to think about maybe using hospice, so we need to get some of this inside information. And you can see pictures of Julie and get the full transcript for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 168. In an episode earlier this month, I introduced you to Meredith, my producer. And from the feedback I got, you guys really liked her. Actually, I knew you'd like her because she's a fun person and she's really smart. So I thought, how about if I bring Meredith on sometimes to answer one of our Tuesday questions? If you're in the Facebook group, you know what I'm talking about. Every Tuesday, I ask a question, sometimes really deep Sometimes just fun, but these questions always generate a ton of responses and some great discussions. So I got Meredith to answer one of those questions, 
And I also asked her about a recent episode of her podcast that I just listened to, and I couldn't believe what her guest was saying. Check it out. All right, Meredith, are you ready for a question? I'm ready. What's a common smell that you can't stand? Candles. <laughs> candles? I really dislike the smell of almost all candles. I know you would think that that would be, a, especially as a 90s kid, right? Yankee Candle, Bed Bath & Beyond, those are all things I'm supposed to be nostalgic about. But the one time I went into the Yankee Candle Store, the Yankee Candle Store in Massachusetts, the big one, I ran out almost throwing up because I just cannot stand <laughs> smell of candles. Wow. I'm the worst 90s kid ever. Yeah, that's and But a candle has to be probably the most pleasant smell anyone could think of, I would think. But Is it not though? you. Is <laughs> Not me, wow. no. All right, Not that's me. weird. You know, I don't think anyone, I'd have to look back at the Facebook group to see, but I don't remember anyone saying candles. Maybe somebody did. There were a lot of smells in that in that answer, for sure. So, okay, I wanted to ask you about a recent episode you did on your podcast called Meredith for Real. You had someone come on and talk about child marriage. And when I first heard that, I, I know a lot of people would hear that and say, yeah, the things they do in other countries, it's pretty crazy. But we're talking about the U.S. What is that? Yeah, isn't that funny how we tend to have this view of American exceptionalism that we think we're always number one in every category, including human rights, especially for children, but it's not the case. And uh, I can't qu quite remember how I came across this particular guest, but she tells the story of how she ended up in a forced marriage. She's from a Satmar Hasidic community, S not Satmar, but something very similar to that. It was depicted in this Netflix um, documentary called Unorthodox, for anyone that is curious. But she realized after she was able to escape from that marriage, she started a nonprofit to help other women escape. And how she learned about child marriage is more and more women requested help from her to escape. But they were minors and therefore legally unable to sign their own legal documents. And if they were to seek shelter in anywhere except for the marital home, they were considered a runaway. And so then she realized that at that time, 48 of the 50 states permitted child marriage, some with no minimum marrying age. You could betroth a baby to somebody else. Now, it's legal in 40 of the 50 states. So she's making progress. Man. And I know what part of what she talked about is marriage is now just used as a cover for pedophilia and sex trafficking. It's just mind boggling how our government allows this. Isn't it? It is crazy. And it wasn't until after I had recorded this episode with her that I just knew what to listen for. And I think that after you hear it, you will realize when you're talking to someone, if they're in that situation, I've met four women since recording that in my own hometown who are in forced marriages. And they were not from any sort of extreme religious community or anything like that. They were just, you know, 
run-of-the-mill folks who were forced to get married, some because of pregnancy, others for, you know, uh, religious reasons, but they weren't like an extreme insular community. It was just like the church around the corner. It's wild. It's really wild. It really opens your eyes to, you know, not just the legal part, but also just the human rights part. So, and her story is incredible how she escaped. She's such an incredible mm-hmm, woman. Yeah. And she, uh, she, she's really doing really cool stuff. Yeah, I was very impressed with her. So, okay, so if, if you want to hear some stuff that's really going to piss you off, but more importantly, <laughs> learn about the group that's actually working to end this, go and listen to episode 216 of Meredith for Real. And Meredith, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Meredith is one of my favorite people, and her podcast is full of stories, just like my own podcast. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lai. And now, one more story. It's this week's listener story. Since we all love stories, we always end the show this way, with a story that was sent in by a listener. And in case you didn't know it, you have a story. Probably several. But you can just pick one, something funny, sad, amazing, whatever, as long as it's not boring, Record it on your phone, like five to ten minutes, and email it to me, scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's story is from Jason. He's the editor-in-chief of a major magazine, and he talks about losing one of his five senses. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Okay, picture it. I am in my 20s. I'm living in an apartment with my girlfriend. I'm in the kitchen washing dishes, and she's in the bedroom. And she yells to me, Hey, is something burning? And I say, No, nothing's burning. And she says, Are you sure nothing's burning? And I uh, I say, No, nothing's burning. And then she walks from the bedroom to the kitchen, where she finds me washing dishes, standing next to, literally next to, a George Foreman grill, I mean, come on, we're in our 20s, pouring smoke, on fire, pouring smoke. And I didn't know. You know why? Because I don't have a sense of smell. And this is the story of how I discovered that and what it's been like. But first, uh, why don't I tell you about myself? My name is Jason Pfeiffer. I am the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and I do a whole bunch of other things, write books, make podcasts, speak, startup advise. But uh, one thing I would like you to know about is that I have a newsletter. It's called One Thing Better. Each week, one way to be happier and more effective at work and build a career or company you love. You can find that at onethingbetter.email. That's a web address. Just plug it into any browser. Onethingbetter.email. Okay, so how did I discover that I don't have a sense of smell? It goes back to that girlfriend, actually. I was in college and I was dating this girl and she had a great sense of smell and a great um, ability to taste food. Like she was like a super taster, a super smeller, I don't know, whatever. And uh, she was the first person in my life who had ever pressed me on things. What is this? What, what's that smell? Hmm, what flower is that? Oh, wait, wait, what, what ingredient is in this food? Is that rosemary? And I 
I eventually realized I did not know what she was talking about at all. And so I told her that once. I was like, I, I, you're picking up something that I'm not. And so we decided to do a, a, a taste test, a blindfolded taste test where I, I don't know, I tied a shirt or something around my face and she had me taste different ice creams. I can't remember what they were, but let's just say vanilla and chocolate and strawberry. And I try these ice creams and they all taste exactly the same. They are the same. And our minds were blown. <laughs> I didn't realize until that moment that I was experiencing the world differently than other people. And maybe you're thinking, well, how could you not have known? Isn't it obvious? But no, it's not obvious. You don't know if you experience the world differently than other people because all you have is your own senses. If you, maybe some people have gone through this, I have. Uh, the first time that you ever put on glasses, you know, like as a kid, the first time you went to an eye doctor and they said, oh, you're vision is not very good. And you put on glasses for the first time. That is when many people experience like a, a total shift in, in how they perceive the world. I remember putting on glasses for the first time and being shocked that I could see individual leaves on trees. I could see fabric on carpet. I didn't know other people saw that stuff until that moment. And I didn't know that other people smelled things that I didn't either. My parents were aware that even as a kid, I didn't care about food. I was not motivated by it. I didn't seem that interested in it, but they just thought, eh, you know, kid doesn't like food. But then in college, dated this girl, did the test with the ice cream, discovered, no, there is something different about me. And I didn't know what it was, but I'll be honest, I wasn't that concerned because I had gone through my entire life like that. So what was there to do? What was there to fix? seemed fine. And then a couple of years later, the fire, where I couldn't smell anything. And that was when I thought, oh, I understand how this can be dangerous. If there's a way to fix this, I, 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 should. I should. I should fix this. So I went to a taste and smell clinic. There are a number of them around the country. I went to the one at the University of Connecticut, and I saw every possible doctor I saw a dentist. I saw a general practitioner. I, I had a, a CT scan of my brain. I, 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 had a, I saw an ENT who stuck a scope up my nose. And why were they all doing this? Well, it's because a loss of smell can come from anything. It, it can be an indicator of like anything. It can be nasal polyps, which is a very simple, just little inflammation in your nasal passage, not a big deal. Or it could be a brain tumor, or it could be anything in between. And so they wanted to see if there was an active cause. And after lots and lots of testing, the answer was no active cause. They couldn't find anything, which means that it was probably one of three things that happened. Or Well, it could be four. One of them could be that it's called congenital anosmia, which means that I was just born that way. But in this case, that's not what it is because I actually get occasional whiffs of things. I, I you know, I, I can smell that a candle is different than the regular air. Like I'm picking up something, just not enough to identify the smell. So it's not congenital, and I have no memory of ever being able to taste and smell things. So my doctor or person or whoever it was at the taste and smell clinic told me, look, 
there are three main causes of what what is really olfactory nerve damage. The olfactory nerves are these tiny little nerves that control your sense of smell. They live um, basically like right at the top of the bridge of your nose, almost between your eyes. And they're easily damaged. And if they're damaged, then you lose your sense of smell. And the three things that can do that the most are an upper respiratory infection, like just a, like a bad cold that happens to get in the wrong place and fry your olfactory nerves, chemical exposure, breathing in chemicals, or head trauma, which is the reason why a lot of people, when they have a car accident, lose their sense of smell. I told my parents this, and they said, head trauma. The answer is it was head trauma. Because uh, I didn't I didn't know this, but when I was a baby, a babysitter was strolling me down the street and I wasn't buckled in and she hit something and um, I fell out of the stroller and landed on my head and was in traction. And so that was probably what happened. That was probably what did it. And now that I know that, I, there's nothing you can do about it. Your olfactory nerves can regenerate on their own, maybe, uh, you know, if you have a car accident, you lose your sense of smell, it could come back. But me, probably not, because it's been so long. And that's okay. So what's, what's life like? Well, first of all, here's the thing, um, you know, you might be wondering, I've been talking this whole time about smell and olfactory senses, but the taste test was with the ice cream, which is really about tasting things. So what's the connection? The connection is that what you think of as taste, like if you taste uh, a chocolate cupcake, you're actually doing two things at the same time. You're utilizing two different senses. So you are tasting, which is technically just sweet, salty, sour, bitter. It's from your tongue. But then odor molecules from this chocolate cupcake go to the back of your throat and up and are read by your olfactory nerves, your sense of smell. And that is what creates the sensation of flavor. The chocolate that you taste is actually you smelling chocolate inside of your face. It's, 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 it's not a taste. It's a flavor. It's a combination of taste and smell. I, my tongue works just fine. So I, I get taste. If I eat chocolate, it's sweet. It's just not chocolate. That's why chocolate is vanilla, is strawberry, is everything. Um, when I was single, I, I did not marry that girl from college. Uh, eventually, I moved to New York. When I was single, I was very afraid of buying things that would smell. <laughs> I didn't buy milk, for example, because I didn't want it to go bad. I didn't. I was afraid of not knowing. Uh, I was also, I was obsessive about washing my sheets and my towel because, you know, if I brought a girl over uh, and uh, it smelled bad, uh, I wouldn't know. And that was scary. Now I'm married and it's actually pretty useful <laughs> for my wife because she had me change all the diapers or a lot of the diapers uh, when our kids were very little because I couldn't smell it. Uh, I take out the garbage. I walk down the street in New York City where I live in the summer. There's garbage outside. It's smelly. doesn't bother me. And, I, and my wife, uh, when we go out to eat, she tends to order two things and I'll just eat whichever one she likes less because it doesn't matter to me. I also don't crave food. So that's pretty useful. You know, I don't know. I if I could fix this, if I could fix this, I would because I understand that I'm missing something. And especially when you travel, and so much of travel is about food and the sense of place and just ingesting that. And I miss some of that. I I, I know, but on a day to day basis, I just don't think about it much. And the way I the way I've just kind of come to understand 
this is, you know, we have these senses and it's how we understand the world. And if you have to lose one of them, then I think I lost the right one. And, you know, sometimes in life, that's as much as you can ask for. (laughs) So that's what it's like to not have a sense of smell. If you have more questions, feel free to reach out. That newsletter that I told you, One Thing Better, you can get it at onethingbetter.email. If you reply to that email and any of the emails that come from that, it goes directly to my inbox. I'll read it. I'll get back to you. Um, Go enjoy your chocolate and vanilla and strawberry ice cream. And uh, tell me how it is.